This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 45. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 45 you're currently listening to. In case you thought you were listening to any other episode, Session 45, of course, brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. Glad to be here with you today. Got a great show with uh, another mastering engineer. Yes, it's time to talk more mastering. This time with Piper Payne, formerly of Michael Romanowski Mastering, now of Coast Mastering. Big development there. We'll talk about that. Now, this is really cool. Piper is... She's the only person I know that's ever worked alongside Bob Katz at Digital Domain in Orlando. Uh, She did that in 2009. She also was the uh, senior audio associate at the Banff Center in Banff, Canada in 2010. She's also the newly elected vice president of the uh, San Francisco chapter of the Recording Academy, and she co-chairs the San Francisco Producers and Engineers Wing. And also serves on the education committee. Basically, she's crazy busy is what she is. She's also an active member of uh, AES and the Women's Audio Mission. And hey, speaking of AES, many of you are probably going to AES this week in New York. So uh, I will not be there. As you all know, I that falls over Halloween. And, you know, me being the dad that I am, I am not going to be there. I'm going to be trick-or-treating with my kids. So, but if you are going to AES, uh, make sure and look for Piper. She's going to be on a panel there. And you, if you see her, at least say hello. I heard you on Working Class Audio. So there you go. Piper Payne coming up. So let's see what else is going on. Hey, I know what's going on. You know what I'm doing? I'm drinking coffee. And you know what kind of coffee I'm drinking? I'm drinking the WCA blend that was sent to me. My loyal WCA listener, Thomas Supernot, sent me some badass coffee from the Cellar Door Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Cellar Door. Uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. Smell it? Oh, it's good. Mm. Let's see what else is going on. You know, I mentioned sometime, I don't know which podcast it was. Shit, I'm losing track of time. Uh, I talked about mixing it up, and I talked about how I'm switching from... Um, I mentioned Pro Tools to Persona Studio One. I uh, believe I also mentioned switching from T-Mobile to Republic Wireless. I got out of T-Mobile, 10 years with T-Mobile. Amazing. Long time, long time. They have good customer service for the most part, uh, but I needed a cheaper bill. And um, this company, Republic Wireless, they're in South Carolina. So if you work for Republic Wireless, hello. So I got my phone. I I bought this phone. Phone was three hundred bucks. Yeah, I gotta say I really like it. It um, it works as compared to my other phone, which didn't work. Service seems to be great, and uh, hey, you gotta love that bill. So, just giving you a report back on that. That's working out so far. Uh, that book I was reading, Sonic Boom, I told you about. Um, you can find that on the WCA Recommends page. I'm almost done with it. I'm a little bit of a slow reader. Uh, make sure you. Uh, check that out. It's really interesting. There are some boring chapters I'm going to tell you right now that I just kind of was like, ah, this is boring. And I, you know, turned a few pages and was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Very interesting information there on Disneyland, on how they control the audio in Disneyland. 
I don't know. I found it interesting. And the next time you go to Disneyland, maybe you're going to pay much closer attention to um, how they deal with sound in Disneyland. But uh, I thought it was interesting. So you might want to check that out. That's about it. Except I do want to say, uh, mention about our new sponsor, Universal Audio. I have put a banner up on the website. They're having a deal now. Uh, if you buy an Apollo Twin, you get some UAD plugins for free. And let me click on that. Okay. Yeah. That works. Excellent. If you buy an Apollo Twin, you get some UAD plugins for free. And the offer ends on December 31st, 2015. So uh, it says now until December 31st, 2015, purchase and register. That's the key phrase there, register. An Apollo Twin Solo or a Duo, USB or Thunderbolt, and you'll be eligible to receive UAD reverb, preamp, and guitar effects plugins for free. How about that? That's pretty cool. There's no coupons or redemption codes. Uh, the plugins will automatically be added to your account once you register. So that's cool. Kind of a no-hassle way to deal with that. So let's see. Already own any of the promotional plugins? No problem. Purchase and register a new Apollo Twin Solo or Duo, and you'll receive a single-use coupon of equal value to the plug-in or plugins you already own. That's cool. See, that's just common sense. That's good. I like that. So... Uh, yeah, make sure you check that out. If you are planning on buying a twin, make sure you click on that banner on the WCA page and uh, make sure you do register after you buy that. So don't miss out on that. I think that's going to be a good deal. Hey, and uh, while you're at AES, if you're at AES, make sure you stop over to the uh, Universal Audio booth, say hello, and uh, tell them I sent you to say hello. And uh, yeah, that's it. So yeah. It's all good. Hey, one other thing. Thank you so much. 1,800 likes on Facebook. Damn, that's really great. So, oh, hey, I know one other thing. And I forgot to tell you this in the last podcast. I can't believe I forgot about this. So check it out. We're doing some shirts. And uh, if you want a shirt, you got to jump on this because I'm. here's what I'm doing. I'm not pre-printing the shirts because I don't know what the demand is. So... I'm doing it through a company called Teespring, and they're printing them up, and they're also doing the fulfillment. So they're going to deliver them to you, which is cool. I've set up two sites or two two campaigns. There's a U.S. campaign and a European Union campaign, really because I thought if I just have the U.S. thing and, and fans over in Europe and other parts of the world uh, want to get in on it, the shipping would just be ridiculous. So. That's why I've set up two separate uh, campaigns to take care of everybody as much as I can there. So uh, check it out. If you click on um, the link that is on the WCA site, which I'm doing now, and it's okay, good. That's working. Just making sure. Uh, it'll take you over there. And uh, at first there was a question of, is there going to be a black border around the WCA logo? Originally there was. We sorted that out. It is now just the classic white on black WCA logo on a black shirt. No other colors available. Uh, it's just black because that's the way it is. That's how I roll. So yeah, check that out. Um, and the it runs out on November 2nd. So you don't have too much more time. So jump on over there. We Honestly, we haven't sold that many. And we need to, on the European site, we need to meet a certain threshold. And as of now, there's only two more needed to print. So jump on over there. Order shirt, support the website. I'd appreciate it. That'd be fantastic. And uh, I will continue to bring you some 
awesome interviews from different people. I got some really, I mean, I always, I think we always have good people, but I have some really stellar interviews coming up that I think a lot of you are going to be very excited about. So that's that. All right. So let's talk to Piper Payne here on the Working Class Audio podcast, and I will continue to drink the coffee while you listen to the interview. How about that? I think that works out. All right. Piper Payne on the Working Class Audio podcast. Piper, welcome to this podcast, and thanks for having having me over and the coffee. Of course. Yeah. The studio runs on coffee. What studio doesn't run on coffee? Mm. If there's a studio out there in the world called Decaf Studios. <laughs> I'm never going there. I'm never going there. They just make, um, they make like funeral marches, like dirges. Yeah. They make like the slowest music. Oh. <laughs> okay. Slow and quiet. We're off to a, we're off to a <laughs> roaring You know slow. it's like 11 o'clock in the morning. That's just, just barely time to wake up. Oh, please. I get up at 6.30 every morning. You have kids. I, I have fur kids. They sleep in with you me. You have fur kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here at Coast Mastering uh, in Berkeley, California. We are around the corner from Fantasy Studios, and we're basically in uh, a spot that is the result of a major, major transition because, Piper, you you and Michael Romanowski were at Michael Romanowski Mastering at 1340 Mission in the former Coast Building, uh, former mm -hmm. studio of mine, Broken Radio. And uh, in essence, basically, the rent was going to be too much, right? We had a few options. Um, one was continue the lease as it was. The rent was a lot. It is in San Francisco, of course, um, everywhere. Just say San Francisco and that's all you Just need Just San to Francisco know. and everybody goes, dollar signs, boom, boom. We had to have a, a come to Jesus moment of, do we stay for much should longer? Should I stay or should, should I go? Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's a clash we just gonna right We're just going to speak in, in song titles, I think. That's right. Yeah. So uh, time after time, we... <laughs> <laughs> We were paying high rent and um, it, it ended up uh, that we had an opportunity to come over here to, to uh, Fantasy Studio C and take over this part of the facility. And this, this part of the complex hadn't been, hadn't been occupied by any studio for a long time. For, for a while it was CCR's old place. Um, the, whole, the whole facility was built for, Green's you know, for, for, to, for that label to be able to support all of the artists that had come over to make recordings because of CCR. And in fact, the, I'm told that the, the, the outside door, because we're not, you're not technically we're not in, internally exactly. connected to fantasy. Yeah. Well, there's no door like to, you know, fantasy land or anything over there. To fantasy it's, land. Um, there used to be, actually used to be one, I'm pointing over to the right. Uh, there used to be one through the hallway back there. But there's um, there's a separate entrance here, which was, this was this part of the facility was built for John Fogarty's um, little rehearsal and production facility um, outside of any records that he did in, in fantasy proper, his own entrance, all that stuff. And so. Jeffrey over at Fantasy told the story that that door was put in specifically for John Fogarty because he didn't want to have to go and deal with reception. And Who does? You know, no, he just, just wanted a private entrance. <laughs> <laughs> we all want a private entrance, right? Yeah. So yeah, we have private, we have our private entrance, we have private parking. We have two, and I'd like to say two and a half mastering rooms here. Michael's room, which is converted uh, into a, a purpose-built mastering room out of the live room space. It, yeah, incidentally, it used to be the Foley pits and stuff, so they did tons of huge movies. Um, Foley work here for like 20 years after CCR had vacated. Mm -hmm. And then my room here, which is 
the control room, but we've totally turned it all around and made it into a purpose-built mastering room. Took out all the treatment that was here before, started fresh, took out the platform and the floating floor and everything, um, and started started fresh to build a, a proper mastering room here. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, it used to have a compression ceiling, and now we have an expansion ceiling. We have... Um, the bass response is really, really good in this room. It's fantastic. The room itself has a really good tone, which I totally love. And then we have the half mastering room, um, which is where our apprentice Drew makes parts and and makes uh, does QC for the masters and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, Jessica Thompson has just moved here from New York, and she is heading up our restoration archival um, part of the facility. So she's doing some mastering and then also doing archival restoration. So it's a, it's a really cool, um, a cool field that we're in and, um, a cool, uh, value that we're able to add to our facility here. You've transitioned from Michael Romanowski mastering to coast mastering. You took the old coast name and yeah. applied it here. Why the change from Michael Romanowski to coast? When we decided like I was telling you before, we had we were at this crossroads where we had to decide to stay and keep building out the facility, even though there was some dispute over who owned the who owned the actual building, and so it was difficult for us to actually put any further improvements into it, further than what Michael and Paul um, and you know people before them like you um, that had put put all these improvements into the building, which was a recording studio since the late fifties, early sixties. They had to do all that with their own resources. The management company didn't necessarily help with any of that. They just kind of looked the other way when they were making you know these huge um, changes to the building. Um, so it was sort of sort of like, do we keep working on this and, um, and, and, you know, hunker down further, or do we open up and see what else is out there Mm -hmm. and do just mastering, which is what we really wanted to do. Um, so we, we, you know, I've, I've always just been in, into the, the mastering and wanting to develop that as my career. Same with Michael. Michael's been mastering, you know, for 15, 20 years, and we really wanted to get back to that and not run a recording studio. It's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, back to the the question of you know the name change. Ah, the name change. Well, yeah. I mean, we wanted to keep the keep the legacy of Coast alive. We weren't necessarily. We're not. I mean, we're not necessarily in business with fantasy. Although there's a lot of reciprocation that we've already seen happen this month, which is fantastic. Um, we we've mastered quite a few records for fantasy over the years, and would love to keep doing that, um, but not necessarily become fantasy mastering. So we had to find a new name. Michael Romanowski Mastering had expanded from just Michael for five ten years, and then I came into the picture four and a half years ago, and it was still kind of appropriate and fine for it to be just his name. Um, and then as soon as we started expanding further, and then decided to take on a new a new venture out here, we decided to change the name from Michael Romanowski Mastering to something else appropriate, and we thought coast would be a great way to keep that legacy alive. And in, and that encompasses a, you know, a wide variety of talented people, obviously yourself included in that. No, it t- totally makes sense. Just curious how that all came about. Mm-hmm. And was there an opportunity to buy the building in San Francisco or had that opportunity yeah, passed? Yeah, it was Michael's opportunity to make. I'm, I'm a, a part of the business and an engineer. It was, you know, I'll let him tell you all the specifics about that. But there was an opportunity to buy the building and then that ended in some some dispute over the actual owner of the building further than the management company. They they legitimately own the building, but the woman who thought she owned the building just fought them in court for a long time. And so in in order for us to make the make the um for Michael to make the offer on the on the building, the the price went up considerably through that lawsuit. So it was just, you know, a lot of 
limbo for a couple of years. And then we started exploring other options and it ended up that, that it was better for us to move on. Mm-hmm. But we could have, we could have, I mean, we also were at the end of the lease. We could have renewed the lease mm-hmm. and, and stayed there for another few years. But Michael lives in Berkeley. He lives five minutes from here. I live in the North Bay. You know, we love San Francisco and we're there all the time, especially for Grammy related things. I'm vice president of the Academy here in San Francisco now, and Michael's a trustee. And so we're there all the time, but we also really love the East Bay. And there's no real reason for either of us to have to commute into San Francisco every day. I'm excited that you all are moving over here. I'm, I'm excited of the expansion of the East Bay recording scene and what that's what that means for the Bay Area. Well, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's just a little easier to exist over here, at least for now. I mean, I used to live, I used to live in Oakland and it was, I was happy to come home and be here in, in Oakland and at the end of the day and really excited to have that, have that same feeling while I'm working here now. It's like there's parking. There's parking. Let's <laughs> let, let's. It gets down to parking. That's really what it's about. It does, and there's really good coffee here, and and uh, and really nice people, and you can like walk your dog out here. It, it's it is cool. Ju- I, let's, you know, I, I joke, but I mean, really, if you can't park, if you have to be challenged by parking, which thirteen forty Mission was, Man, was severely challenged by parking as yeah. time went along, um, it can be really hard. And frustrating for clients. I mean, even more so, I think, for studios because you've got bands loading in. Mastering, that's a little bit different because you're not hauling a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a total bonus. So I wanted to get that out of the way, kind of talk a little bit about that transition because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a major focus of your life right now, professionally speaking. So you're going to have two mastering rooms here. You've had Bob Hodas in to shoot the room multiple times and kind of fine fine tune the room. Bob was involved in in building as well. So as we were starting to even even when we scouted out the facility, we brought Bob in to make sure that he kind of signed off on how we were going to start with the rooms and you know what the orientation was going to be of each room and and then of course he gave um, his recommendations on what the dimensions of each of the rooms should be, you know, for instance, does mine need to come in on the sides a little bit? Does Michael's need to, you know, come down on the ceiling a bit, things like that. And so right from the beginning, right from even from when we were, when Michael was dealing with the negotiations of the lease, Bob was involved to, um, to help with talking about how the build out was going to happen. And then as it was happening, Bob would come and check in. And then as it was, um, you know, as it was getting finished, uh, Michael's, Michael's wall was a little bit out of spec from what he had originally, um, you know, asked for. So they had to, they brought Bob in again and had the wall brought in a bit. And Can you so, talk a little bit about that? Is the building, I, I saw a couple guys out here, mm-hmm. are they with the building? Yeah, they're with the property management. Um, so they've, they've actually been amazing. They've taken care of, I mean, it's, it's all built into, it's all built into Michael's lease. And these are things that you should definitely talk to him about, but they, uh, but they've, they have, um, done a lot of building around fantasy and maintained a lot of this building in the Saul's Ants media center. Um, and they just, they do this, they come in and build really high quality rooms and we, you know, with great, with, um, really great materials and they make sure that they, I mean, they know how to build a studio. And so they, they've actually come in and done all the building and they amortize it over the lease and that they've just done an amazing job. And they did it so fast. Um, a month, they rebuilt this entire facility. 
They all just through the month of September, and that was it. You didn't have to source out a separate construction situation. No, that was that was part of the you know part of the the draw to come here is like they're what they welcomed us with open arms, and they're like, let us help you, you know. Well, and they've and they've done a fantastic job. It's been amazing. So because that's such a huge undertaking. And I know you say Michael can speak more more uh, clearly about this, but your understanding of it is is it's built into the lease. It's amortized over. The course of the lease, and yeah, so I mean, to and I wasn't around for the building of the master rooms back at thirteen forty Mission, at, at, you know, at the old Coast building, um, but I understand they spent many tens of thousands of dollars um, and six months of their lives building building out those rooms, and they did it to you know such a degree of detail that it took us three days to tear them down, you know, to take down the acoustic treatment and all that stuff. It took down, took a lot of time. Oh, so you stripped everything well, we ha- out. I mean, you know, we, the, the quality of the, the stuff that they put in the walls and, and that they put together to build those rooms was just top notch and we couldn't just leave that behind. Right. You know, so without damaging anything, we, we took all of the denim and we took all of the, um, you know, all the materials, the other materials off the wall and everything. And I mean, you know, this, this base trap behind me is, um, is my old corner trap. And so that'll be repurposed. Um, it'll be, it'll be adjusted a bit more, um, and probably have a little bit more stuff put behind it, but all the stuff that they put in there was, was built to take out later. So that's, that's great. So in a very short period of time, this place was up and running and, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, constructed, you're not a hundred percent up and running. I mean, I'm, I'm mastering, I am sonically 95% to where it's going to be, say a month from now. I just have to let the room settle and let myself settle a little bit to be able to then go into say, Bob, okay, here's what it's going to take to do the last 5%. You know, this is what I need. I need another third of a DB in, you know, around a hundred Hertz or something like that. And that's really just, you know, like when I moved into my old room, John Greenham's old room, actually. When I moved into that room, um, it took me about three months to be able to go, okay, well, this is what's trending on these records that I'm making right now. Um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm adding, a, I feel like I'm, I'm compensating for this, you know, this amount that I'm, I'm missing in the base. Um, and so that's been a consistent thing looking across all of my log sheets, for instance, I'm, I'm actually giving a little bit more of what I, you know, in the base or something like that, a little bit more than what I would usually do. Um, so I think that it's a factor of the room. I'm, I'm having to compensate for not hearing this thing and then just trust that it's not, that it's not going to be a problem when I, when it leaves here, kind of after I do a few more records in here, I'll know kind of what, what it's going to take to tell Bob to boost more or, or take some, some out of, you know, some certain ranges, you know, you can get like 90% there with speaker, you know, really good speaker placement and a good room. And then you have a global EQ that'll, you know, give it a little bit more evenness. Mastering rooms are, as you know, mastering rooms are built to be um, just really linear Mm -hmm. and not necessarily impressive to clients or anything like that. But you also have to have some degree of, of, of clients and, and mixers feeling comfortable in your space too. So it can't be completely unexciting for them. So it's just got to be uh, something that's very predictable for me. And, and after doing some more records, I'll, I'll kind of know exactly what that's going to take, hmm. but I am working in here. I mean, it's, it's, and, and I'm actually really impressed. I've had like four records and no revisions so far. So pretty good. It is good. Yeah. Well, this is exciting. This is very cool. And I, I'm sure you're happy that you have a more stable situation. Um, without quoting specific numbers, can you give me like a percentage of difference in the rent 
of the of the building uh, of this versus the San Francisco spot? Like, is it fifty percent less, twenty five percent? No, it's not. It's not much less. The rent the rent was not the problem. Oh, it was all the other things that come with. Um, being in a semi-unstable situation in the San Francisco Soma area. Right. That was the major reason for moving was it was not safe for our clients. Um, It was a terrible commute across the Bay Bridge for Michael and the Golden Gate Bridge for me. And our rent was not cheap in any way. And the overhead of the building was quite a lot. You know, it was, it baffled my mind. it, it, It boggled my mind that we couldn't, that Twitter had moved in right behind us. Yet we couldn't get Comcast to come over and service our building I know. for cable internet. You know, I had to pay $5,000 to have WebPass come in and just deliver us a steady internet um, connection. And that was the cheap, that was the absolute cheapest option besides our two DSL lines coming in that would cost, you know, 150 bucks a month for a, you know, point, 1.2 up, I think, and nine and a half down. It was like completely ridiculous. And so it's, it's things like that where you go, come on, this is like the most technological area in the world and we can't even get a cable internet connection, you know? So it's, it's stuff like that. In addition to you know, just really high rent. We, you know, we've had, we had a fantastic relationship with the management company who was right next door. Um, they were always really supportive of us. They took, you know, when, when things get, get difficult, they would, they would help out. And it was, it was, um, it was a really, like I said, good relationship, but, um, it wasn't necessarily the price of the rent or anything that, that made us choose not to, to continue the lease. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, the, uh, it it was, was a lot, it was like, it was like a lot of other things. Yeah. Um, and, and little things that really pile up, you know, if you, if you commute into the city, like for Michael, he was commuting, it would take him an hour plus on the bridge every morning. And I, I know that commute cause I used to do it too. Mm-hmm. Um, take him an hour plus, And then we would have to circle around for 20 or 30 minutes for parking. And then we'd have clients that were late because they couldn't find parking or because they were worried about getting broken into. So they would bark over or something instead. And it's just these little things that pile up and make it really difficult to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're mad all the time, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, I try and be a little more Zen about everything, mm-hmm. but man, well, it's hard. Let's talk a little bit about the economics of mastering. You know, there's a range of there's a range of prices that people charge and obviously one's business plan will dictate that. There's people that charge ridiculously low amounts of money that it's it's suspicious. What's, what's ridiculously low for you? Like if I mean, somebody you says records, so. you know, like on a per hour basis of oh, I'll, I'll master yourself for twenty five bucks an hour, it's like really? Well, but you have some experience to know that you get what you pay for. A lot of people don't have that, you know. I mean, I think as a general rule, I would agree with that. But I've had people, I've had clients complain to me about pricing of mastering of saying the price we're paying per hour is higher than I pay an attorney. Well, depending on, depending on where they go and depending on where they go. Totally. And my dad's an attorney, so I know what those rates are, Yeah, but he's a, he's a humble attorney. He's one of the ones that gives free advice and stuff. And so he's (laughs) (laughs) constantly struggling. But I mean, I think that there is a balance and, you know, some people charge by the song, some people charge by the minute, some people charge by the hour, some people Mm -hmm. do project rates. Um, it's all over the map. It is. And it'd be cool if, um, if, okay. So this might sound a little controversial, but there are some mastering engineers and then there are some mastering engineers and I'm doing air quotes right now. These are apples and oranges, right? You can't compare those two things. You can't compare the person who charges $25 an hour and has a, a, you know, 
a Pro Tools rig and a suite of plugins in an untreated room and a pair, a pair of, um, you know, maybe decent speakers, but definitely not, you know, Ferrari speakers. Um, you can't compare that to the person who does everything in real time outboard analog with real mastering equipment, um, that has invested and saved their entire life and could have bought a house with the amount of money that they spent on their mastering chain in their mastering room, let alone the time that you, the, the, you know, the 10,000 hours that you spend just mastering. Yeah. I would, there's a big difference. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to counter and say that I think that if you strip away all the gear and the situation, to me, it boils down to what you said. Mm-hmm. It's the 10,000 hours. It's the person that does it every day. Like I would go to a master, mastering engineer, not based on equipment. I would go to that person based on results mm-hmm. and experience. I think that the the equipment is important to a degree. I think the most important for me, for me, that it's the ears and the attitude and the the approach and the results mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Now, the equipment, personally, I feel that that's a personal choice. Like, I know you're good at what you do. If you chose to do that with plugins, I wouldn't have a problem with that. There are some plugins that are fantastic. I mean, I I know mastering engineers that work on only, you know, only in the digital realm and that's totally fine. It, it, that's not it your all workflow. depends. That's not my workflow. Um, but I've worked for a mastering engineer who does mostly digital Let's work. Let's talk about that. Okay. You, which a lot of people probably don't know unless they've read your bio is that you've worked for Bob Katz. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me about that experience and how that influences what you do to this day. Sure. Um, so Bob, in in a lot of ways, has been pretty much the best teacher for me. I landed the job with him um, right out of grad school. I had been apprenticing for a mastering engineer in Norway named Tor Legvold for Sonovo Mastering. And he was the one that got me really into mastering. I, I had I had um, just randomly landed this apprenticeship with him and I didn't know much, if anything, about mastering except for that it said <laughs> as uh, I had a company in, um, in college and it, I had listed all of the services that I offer and mastering was one of them. Although after spending one day in a real mastering facility, you realize that you were completely wrong. And that was not, um, you know, just, you know, sequencing a CD is not mastering. Um, so I'll own that. But when I started working for tour, um, he, I realized how well connected you have to be as an engineer, um, especially as a freelance engineer. And so he was really well connected to equipment manufacturers and other mastering engineers and, and other mixers in the area. And Norway is a fantastic place, um, to be involved in the arts. They, the government subsidizes a lot of arts projects. They give grants and they they definitely take care of students that are wanting to learn anything about anything. I mean, they subsidize college tuition and all that. So when I was there, it was actually super freeing to be able to work for this facility that could actually pay me for my time because he had help from the government versus here, you know, where you work for any studio and you have to be there a very long time or you have to bring in your own work to be able to even be paid hourly. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, when I, when I worked for him, it was time for me to decide if I was going to go back to, back to the U S and pursue my classical recording career or a mastering career, um, or come back to Norway. And I actually decided that I was going to go back to Norway, Mm. um, for a while. And about a week after I got back to Michigan, Tor sent me a message and said, Hey, you should know Bob Katz is looking for an assistant. Um, I'll, I'll miss you, but I think this is a fantastic opportunity for you. And, and I will, you know, I'm going to send him an email to let him know that you're going to call him. And so I did. And I, you know, got an interview with him. He flew me down. We you know, spent a whole week together and, and I loved working with him. It was just an, I mean, 
the learning curve for working for a person like Bob who literally never shuts off. Totally. Like he's just a genius dude. He is so smart and so willing to teach. He is, um, and, and just a total mentor. And he still, he still writes on my Facebook posts and tells me how he, th- how, you know, he hopes I'm doing well. And we chat every, on the phone every once in a while. We see each other at AES. He was the one that really taught me how to listen to recordings and, and find the detail that is there or the detail that's lacking and to never, ever compromise on fidelity and quality. Those little extra couple percent at the end of the day of, you know, is it an A or an A plus? Is it a B or a B plus mix that can make you an A or an A plus master? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that count. And those are the things that lead to longevity in a career like this. And Bob was just, he was amazing for that. Eric Valentine talked about in his interview, just bringing the, your A game to the table. Yeah. And from what I know of you, you really do that. You, you do your best to do that. And it, and it's, it's just something that I, I have associated with you Thanks, Matt. for quite some time that you're very serious about what you do. And I really respect that about you. Um, on think- the other side of that, I, I just wanted to ask, mm-hmm. there's always, I think that there's a little bit of a, a contentious thought about, I want to say, you know, some people talk about audio files and I'm, I'm not trying to cast you into a camp here, but some say that those who, those in the world of the audio file listen to the, use music to listen to their equipment. They don't use their equipment to listen to music <laughs> and that they've lost the, the, the bigger picture mm-hmm. of, of what's going, of, of emotionally what's going on. Yeah. Do you, how do you feel? And I'm not saying you're in one camp or another or there, that there needs to be a camp, but you present yourself on the high end. And I wonder if there's a balance that you try to strive for to keep that detail, keep that um, real high level of work and still keep a foot in, I don't know, the... The pro, uh, you know, the, pro the, audio kind of... Well, not just the pro audio, but just kind of like step back and, and, and you know, let go a, a little bit of the uber audiophile type mentality. Um, oh, and do you feel you have that? The audiophile world... I think that I can appreciate that mm-hmm. because I've been exposed to all of it. Um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> um, for instance, Luke Manley and B Lamb of VTL, Vacuum Tube Logic, they're the ones that make my amplifiers. I know that they are completely relentless in their QC and engineering quality. And they bring in engineers like me to come and sit and listen to their amps. Every time they do a new generation of their amplifiers, they'll bring me in. They were a huge help to me in getting started with my, you know, my mastering room in being able to afford equipment. You know, not everyone can afford a pair of amplifiers that costs as much as a midsize sedan um, or a pair of speakers that are, you know, very, very expensive. And so Bob, like people like Bob Hodas and, um, and Luke, although they're definitely in the audiophile world, they have their head on straight and they know that, you know, you have to you have to help out other engineers to get started and to be able to actually appreciate that. The audiophile world that I don't want to associate with is, um, are the ones that they just spend money on speakers for the sake of spending money on speakers. <laughs> um, and I definitely know people like that and I consider them friends, although I'll go and listen to their systems and I don't think that it's actually that good. But I think, I do think that the quality of some audiophile products is just so far and above um, some pro, 
you know, some pro equipment and you can't argue with that to be able to hear the, the detail in the, in the, um, you know, in the high end of the speakers or to be able to listen to a monitor control or a piece of software that they have absolutely not spared the, the quality of the engineering at all along the way. That's what makes me excited to listen to that kind of thing. But I mean, I definitely know people that are in the audiophile world that they literally just make things expensive because people will buy them. Um, and I've gone to all these hi-fi <clears throat> shows and I've played music for them and um, and I've listened to a lot of audiophile products and I think a lot of them are a little bit voodoo, but, but there are some that are just fantastic, like, you know, Amara, which is made by Sonic Studio, which has the same engines as our, as my mastering software. Um, there are some labels that are creating hi-fi source material because that's like, that's the other thing, you know, if you don't, if you have the best speakers in the world and you've taken, you know, spent a ton of time on treating your room and bringing in the right acquisition, but you don't have the right source to play with, or you don't have the right DAC to play it through or the right computer components to make it actually run properly or the right turntable that's tuned properly by a real turntable tech rather than just like, oh, here's my $10,000 turntable. I'm going to take it out of the box. And I'm going to put it on this, you know, stand and the stand sounds great, but the turntable doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, that's, I think, what people f- think of when they think of audiophiles. They're like all these, you know, crazy people that spend so much money on everything. But there are actually people that do care a lot about what they're doing and they, they I, I like to align myself with them where I I have been exposed to quality listening systems yeah. and quality rooms and quality source material and I'm not gonna compromise on that. It's part of that's that's the same as like in, in mastering, you know, what I how I know how to make a record sound good is because I know what something else of that genre or that time period sounds and what it could sound like. And so just being exposed to that, now I, I just can't settle for anything less. Once again, to bring up Eric Valentine, mm-hmm. just because it's fresh in my mind, Eric's got a ton of enthusiasm and like, let's go kind of spirit. And I said, well, what do you do if you've got all that energy and the client doesn't have as much energy as you do? So for you to frame it for the mastering world, what if the recordings you're dealing with are really kind of not as good as what you could, you know, the appro- mm. the uh, the treatment that you could provide them. I mean, let's say somebody brought you a four-track lo-fi masterpiece. <laughs> this is hilarious because we actually, like three days ago, had an inquiry, which was I recorded this on a four-track uh, with the limiters on hard, and uh, I just want it to be on cassette, you know, can you master it? How much is it going to cost? Is it, can it be like 50 bucks instead so that you don't have to, you know, I don't really care that much about it. You just like run it through the system or whatever. I'm like, well, it's a business. I could, so, so but, at the end of the you day, know, yeah. at the end of the day, of course, you know, you have to pay your rent. Um, but do I want to? No. Do I wish you, you know, had spent more time making a cool sounding lo-fi thing rather than just doing it lo-fi for the sake of doing it lo-fi? Um, you know, I like intention behind recordings. But, um, I think it's up to us to keep the quality up and to, and to say to the artist, you know, this go around, I think it, you know, it is what it is. And that's what my, actually my tattoo right there says, and it is what it is. You, you have to maybe, um, just take it, take it for, for what it is at that moment. Um, but definitely educate them to say, you know, next time you do this, spend some time. You don't have to spend money, but just spend time to get the right kick drum sound or spend time to get the right vocal sound for your record because it makes 
it's so much, the whole project ends up being so much better, but also I don't have to work as hard and I don't have to, you know, spend so much time on this mastering this, or you didn't, you wouldn't have had to spend so much time in mixing or paying for so much mixing to be done. Do you think that that's a judgment call on, on the art itself? Like maybe it's not ideal, but as you say, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, there are some, some records that get, you know, they get mixed to death because the recording wasn't fantastic. <laughs> no and, you know, I always get that thrown back in my face, you know, when I tell an artist to, you know, get, get the right sounds on the day instead of, it's not just about the performance. It's also about the fidelity of the recording because people have to listen to it for a long time and they go, yeah, but that Led Zeppelin record was recorded in a living room and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, yeah, but that um, Nirvana or, you know, the whatever Dave Grohl thing was done in the garage recently. Um, a high end. I'm garage. like, yeah, but he had so much stuff, and it was rec- it was produced by the best people in that genre. You know, it's fine if you don't have a lot of money to spend on recording equipment, but geez, oh, Pete, just spend the time and don't compromise. It's fine if it is, if that's what you got right now, fine. Mm-hmm. But you learned something, right? Nobody goes out and makes the most perfect record on their first try. And you can't tell me that some, you know, insert huge pop star right here, um, that that thing wasn't mixed and remixed a thousand times before that person came in and cut the vocals mm-hmm. and, and arranged differently. And then they probably remixed or rearranged it based on the, how they were singing it. And they probably came in and sang it several times. I mean, people, people forget that, that you have to spend the time to get the quality performance in addition to actually upholding the the recording quality. Yeah. But I guess it, it, you know, genre, I mean, there's a vast difference in the difference between Fugazi and Katy Perry and the difference between the time spent, obviously, you know, it, uh, those, those, those pop records, man, sounds so amazing. They really do, Yeah, but they do nothing for me. It, yeah. To me, it's it's sweet candy, uh, whereas like time and time again, I go back to what emotionally gets me off. And when I sit down and listen to a Fugazi record, which is done by Don Zientara, who I totally just think the world of, um, are they the most hi-fi records? No, but man, they just, oh, they just get, same with, you know, in, in any of the previous bands that came from that, you know, of course, Rites of Spring and, and Minor Threat. Especially Rites of Spring, um, which uh, one of the guys from Fugazi uh, was that was one of his bands. That recording is atrocious, mm. but oh my god, I put it on and it just like makes me want to like tear the room up. Yeah, but how many atrocious recordings did they make that they decided not to put out? Well, I mean, I think that I think I, my, I, the whole the whole point is that I think that there are a lot of editorial um, misses nowadays in putting records out. I think that, um, and this is kind of, you know, one of my, my things that I like to talk about, which is quality and, and holding on to the value of you as an artist. It's fine if you want to put out low, lo-fi recordings, fine, but put out something that represents you as an artist and that you can be proud to show someone instead of going, calling, calling, a mastering engineer and going, what's the cheapest I can get it mastered for? Cause I don't really care about it. I'm just going to give it away. It's just like a calling card for me. Or uh-huh. if someone wants to make it into a coaster, I'll make that CD fine. Um, 
Yeah, I would totally you know, agree with you there. It's just like if you can, you know, money is money is one thing. It's a very big part of the equation in making a record. Mm-hmm. But I think more important, it's the value of you as an artist that's going to make people want to come back and listen more. You know, if you don't have the best chops at singing, um, at least make sure that your recording quality is good. Um, so that people can listen to you as the artist through that, you know, instead of like, you know, recording it on an iPhone or something, which are actually really decent recordings now. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, or I, I, you know, it just, it just kills me when people just say here, take, you know, Oh, Oh, you're a master engineer. I'd love to know what you think of this. Take, you know, take it. I don't really like it, but you know, you tell me what you think or, you know. I don't really want to spend a lot of money on it because no one's going to listen to it anyway. I'm like, well, then what's the point? Why don't you just go play in a bar? All right, let's take a little time out, talk about Audio Technica for a bit. And uh, remember, this is they're running a, a great promo right now where uh, I mentioned it in the last few shows, and you got to make sure to get in on it before the end of the year. Once again, I stress, get your stuff now before the end of the year so you can write it off on your taxes for next year, right? Good idea. So the deal is, is, um, you click on the banner on the WCA page there, and if you are in the market for a 40-series microphone, and that actually encompasses uh, numerous microphones from them, some large diaphragm condensers, some ribbons, uh, stereo. Uh, there's a stereo mic there, the 4050 stereo, so there's actually two capsules in there. And um, yeah, so there's uh, various prices and uh, models to choose from. And we're actually working on some uh, samples that hopefully we can bring you uh, before the promo ends. We want to get those done and up so you can get a sample of what they sound like on some stuff. Uh, Is it a definitive sample and that's how it's going to sound, period, and there's no other way around it? No, obviously not. But uh, So, yeah, so we'll get those up for you. You can check that out. Uh, but the, the key is, uh, of course you buy the microphone, one of those microphones or multiples of those microphones, and you get a free pair of ATH M50 X's, the M fifties. And, uh, let's see, purchase any, okay. Now you got it. The purchase has to be made before the 31st of the year. Uh, but you can actually send in. Uh, the registration it says once you've once you've registered you'll need to uh, follow the instructions instructions provided to mail the following documents you'll need to mail in the uh, printed out re- rebate form and a copy of your original sales receipt with the store name the date of purchase the model number and the price paid clearly legible always clearly legible um, and you'll need the original UPC barcode cut from the product box of each product purchase, not from the shipping carton, but from the product box. So uh, there it is. Yeah, make sure you click on the link on the WCA page and uh, make sure you take care of that. Get yourself a cool microphone. Yeah. All right. So that's it. Let's get back to our interview here with Piper Payne on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'll be honest with you. It seems like in some ways... You should produce records and be a producer because you you do have a definitive opinion about and, I, and, and and vision of how to really do something, mm-hmm. and it seems like you're on the back end of the deal. And in some cases, I think you could have a positive impact on some people's mm-hmm. 
recordings. So that's why I teach a lot. I'm really, really into mentorship for younger engineers, mm -hmm. um, learning what quality is. I even, I mean, I had, I had two degrees in classical recording and I didn't know what quality was until someone sat me down and said, this is what you listen for in a quality recording. Um, you need people to do that for you. You need them to sit you down in a quality, you know, good, good room with a quality system and say, this is what the benchmark for your audio career should be. These are the recordings you should listen to. This is what you should strive for. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, artists should be doing the same thing with each other. That's why we started Balanced Breakfast. That was part of, you know, part of all, all that and growing, you know, growing a community of people that we're trying to lift each other up to. As you go up, you bring people up with you. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, we definitely need that in the audio world. I, I also have a lot of artists that I work with very regularly that will call me before they even start the recording. And they'll say, you know, can I send you some, you know, some preliminary mixes from the first day of recording. And I go, well, you know, I really would just prefer to have it when we're, you know, when, when, it's, when done. it's mostly done or when it's, you know, <laughs> at least I could, I, I actually don't mind intervening at like right before the mix is done, like right before the final mix day, for instance. Mm -hmm. And, and just saying, you know, if you found a little, you know, found a better spot for the kick drum and the bass to sit, it'd make my life a lot easier. It's in that, that's how I try to frame it. Not like your mixes suck, but more like it, the whole project would turn out better because that's how I feel about it. You know, I, I feel like that's, that's what it is, but sometimes people don't really take that as constructive yeah. criticism or creative, um, you know, like, uh, sort of giving them some tips and tricks to make their life a little bit easier. I have to admit, like if, if I was working with an artist and they said, I'm talking with my mastering engineer and they said, I would, I think my head would explode. Yeah. It's not the, that's, yeah, that's definitely so are where you talking I, I, you know, I'll, I'll put it in writing and say, you know, this is your mix engineers. And this is only after soliciting, soliciting this type of response from me. Right. I would never just say, you know, you need to do this. Um, and it'll make the project better because, um, I, you know, I'm not a mixer. I just know how things present to the world. Yeah. And, it's, you know, that's something that some mixers are, are missing is that, you know, they, they, they listen on a system that is set up for them. I listen on a system that's set up for me and then I'm the next step into the world. Right. Um, so I'm, I would never tell a mixed engineer or producer how to do their job. Of course. Um, Good to put it in writing but, too. Because and, some, and to put it in writing clearly to say, this is, this is, this is not my department, but because you asked <laughs> the frequency and I, and I never put it into instrument or, um, or, you know, mixing perspectives like that. I always put it into frequency ranges. There's an issue between hundred and 130 Hertz might look into what's, what's sounding during the chorus is there because it, it's kind of bogging down my compressors a little bit or, um, or, you know, there's something happening on the sides during the verses that's kind of a little bit distracting. I wonder if it's a reverb um, tail that's not being wrangled in properly, you know, something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. and so it's more of like a, because I, you know, I don't have the multi-track in front of me. I have no idea what's going on and it's not my business. I well, just, and also, you it, know, sometimes I want to work can, a little easier <laughs> art, art, in the game of telephone artists can, you know, if you tell an artist something yeah. and you don't write it down, they can kind of take that twist it yeah. and then tell the mix engineer and the mix engineer is like, what? Yeah. And luckily that's never, you know, that's never happened for me. And, and the, other, the, you know, the other thing is like, I've, you know, I've made a lot of records. I, I know how to, 
I know how to mix stuff, but that's not what I do anymore. It's not how I'm listening. Yeah. And that's the point of mastering, right? Is to have a different type of listener focused in on a different thing. You know, like a, I think in terms of frequency ranges and spatial in stereo image balance and loudness and how this, the, how the whole thing stacks. I don't think about it in terms of kick drum, bass, guitar, keys, vocal. I, I don't, I don't even, I don't even listen to records like that. Um, when, you know, when it comes in on, on, on my chain here, it's not, um, wow, gee, I really like the chorus or that was cool how, what they, you know, what that lyric was. It's not, it's, I so don't even think about that until it's pr- pretty much until it's being QC'd. Yeah. Um, much the same way. Like if you go to a, go to the doctor, they don't see you as a, you know, a person, they see you as these, um, you know, biomechanic things that are all working together to make you walk around the room. Right. And so that's kind of, let me shift gears for a minute and, and focus on the mix engineer. What are things that drive you nuts? What are some things that as mix engineers we can do to improve the quality of the whole situation? When I go visit other studios, I can't even tell you how many times they have the speakers that are like one is just a little bit in front of the other and that's like totally screwing up their bass. Um, just like thoughtfully put your speakers up. Don't just like put one up there and one up there right out of the box and plug them in and go, okay, it works. Let's make a, re- make, make a record. It's going to mm-hmm. be great. Please look up the basics of speaker setup. Um, look up the basics of digital audio. And, Take some time and if you and, don't and, and measure. You, exactly. How, like, you know, set up an equilateral triangle. We all learned that in first grade. It's not that hard. Um, sorry. <laughs> really? Wow. Well, I went to public school. Some people around here probably learned it in, when they were two. <laughs> All the private schools around here. I didn't learn what an equilateral triangle was in first grade, but really, and I went to a public school. Oh, we probably did. You learned. We probably learned. Okay, equilateral, isosceles, and scalene. That scalene is always my favorite. Anyway, equilateral triangle, right? Right. All the sides are equal. Sure. Speaker, speaker, head for right. listening. Oh, I know what it should is. be. Just, you know, yeah. you do, right? Yeah. That's a huge thing that people forget. And then it makes if it makes them mix in a different way. It makes it clouds their decisions. Yeah. You know? Okay, so make sure your speakers are set up properly and your room is set up properly. Headphone mixing is a big problem nowadays with a lot of people working in their bedrooms. Uh recording fidelity. A lot of people ask me about uh how much headroom and stuff they should let be in the recording. And I just um I don't want them to alter their mix based on some hard and fast rule that they think they need to put in for mastering. I want them to be thinking about that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I find is that people are constantly overloading their master bus in the digital world. Can't do that. You know, a master bus in a lot of ways is just another fader and you're just dumping more audio into it and the computer has to then decide what it's going to get rid of and what it's going to keep. Not great. But probably my absolute biggest pet peeve right now is people that are taking MP3s and putting them on vinyl. Yes. And companies, um, uh, companies are letting them do that and they're not going, Hey guys, maybe you should like at least send us a wave file, you know? But this, I think kind of goes back to what you're saying about, you know, like guiding people, mentoring and pointing them in the direction of, you know, people that do quality work. And I mean, I don't, I can't imagine like any of the Jeff Powell or, Welcome to 1979 or... Of course, they're not doing it. 
They are, of course, they're not. Those folks are, but there are others that do. I actually had a a client. um, I he had his record mastered, and he this was before he worked with me. But I heard about this. Had the he had the record mastered, the mastering engineer. This is an air quotes mastering engineer gave him MP3s only. Did not deliver him a CD, even even just sixteen forty four files from the mastering session. Just only gave him MP3s. Right. Um, And he didn't know enough to ask any further. Um, and the mastering engineer then sent off MP3s to get pressed. He pressed like 300 vinyl, um, uh, seven inches. And now he has all of these seven inches that don't sound that good. And he's going to the mastering engineer, like what happened? And the, and the mastering engineer just goes, well, you know, vinyl doesn't sound as good. It's kind of band, you know, band limited and doesn't have as many dynamics and blah, blah, blah. And if someone along the way had said, Hey, you really should be at least sending in, you know, at the very least 24 bit 48 K files. Um, and hopefully at least two X. So 88.2 or 96 kilohertz sample rates, you know, to, to be pressed onto vinyl because they're, you know, you get what you put in, um, garbage in garbage out, but the, no one along the way even said a word he should have received wave files from the mastering, the mastering engineer, or, or he, I'm not sure who sent in the files, but all he knew was, Oh, I have these files and they've been mastered. It's time to send them in for pressing. And even they didn't say, Hey, do you have a different type of file? But I mean, there's a lot of ideal circumstances that could exist or we wish they would exist, but like anything, I mean, you know, people are, are going to make mistakes that, Hopefully they won't make again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what you're talking about there, that's pretty horrendous. That's not, and that's not the first time it's happened. And that wasn't the last time that type of thing has happened. It's happened multiple with times. With this person? Not with this person. He knew and he learned after that. And he came to he came to me and said, okay, what do I have to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again? We went through all the, you know, all the things that he would have to know. But that, you know, several people. That happens to mm-hmm. I mean, do, do you ever feel like compelled to reach out to the engineer and go, Hey, look, just don't want to cast any judgment here, yeah. but, um, you did this thing and I just wanted to, you know, encourage you not to do that. I, I don't know how, how, how you would approach that. That sounds a little aggressive, aggressive. Yeah, it is pretty aggressive, <laughs> aggressive. I like to be passive, passive. Um, <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think that would be yeah, I mean, not very right. nice. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I mean, but I, I, you know, this is also like, like I said, air quotes, mastering engineer, where it was actually the mixer who mastered it um, and called themselves the mastering engineer and then all, sent it all away. I've mastered stuff. I know, but you know stuff, Matt, you know, know, and you know what quality is and, and you've been, you, you know, you've been asked to do it because you know, but um, my beef is just with, with people that are trying to just make an extra couple hundred bucks at the end of the record. And this goes to all of the problems that we we see in the in the music industry, which is people are trying to hold on to as much work as they can and they don't want to share anything and it's it's hard for anybody to make a living that way. And it's hard for anybody to learn. You learn and get outside their own comfort zone that way. Do do I have someone that comes to me and says I have this recording. I want you to mix it and then master it. No, that never happens. Uh, Well, it it has happened, but I have said, no, you know, go talk to this mix engineer. uh The reason is because it, it furthers my network and it furthers reciprocity in everybody's 
career in everybody's everybody's realm. See, for me, like when when somebody comes to me and says, hey, "So I want you to mix my record," and I say, "Okay, great," um, you know, I recommend mastering, and then they go, "Oh, well, budget? We, yeah, we just we don't have the budget to do that." And my greatest fear as a mix engineer is for them to take what I've spent time doing yeah. and having it ruined by an I, air quote master. I totally engineer. get that. So then I go, well, fuck that. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can. I totally here. get that. Um, then you wanted to talk about rates. Let's, let's get into it. What do you charge on top of mixing to master? Oh, I'll just do, usually like this most recent one, I just did an all in budget. And when I brought up the concept of mastering, they were like, oh yeah, there's no, there's no room to do that. I was like, oh. Hmm. But haven't they spent, I mean, you know, I'm going to sound like a terrible person for saying this, but like, haven't they spent years on their music and spent, spent, I'm going to guess several thousand dollars to get it properly recorded and properly mixed? Not, not all the time. I mean, in many cases, I think you have artists that they'll write a batch of tunes. Let's, let's just like plot it out in a linear fashion here. Let's say they write a bunch of tunes over the course of January and February. They go out in March and April and May and they play them out, maybe make some changes. And then in June and July, maybe they record them. And by August and September, it's being mixed and mastered, mm. you know. So, yeah, they've spent eons on their on their music. Eons, I don't, I don't think that, like, everybody has this big, like, buildup and then the moment of recording. I think that a lot of recording is like, hey, I got a new batch of tunes I just wrote. Let's get in the studio. Let's record them. Yeah. That's been my experience. So with these, with this recent thing, I, I don't know, I was really happy with the recording. I was mm -hmm. really happy with the mixing and I sure as hell wasn't going to let some low ball cut rate mastering person do a hatch, hatchet mm -hmm. job on it. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I don't know. I just make it a part of the whole deal. But you, you know, you're not the average. I mean, you are an average, you know, like a, I don't as far as caring about the project, you're not the average mix engineer. And I know this because I've heard records that you mixed. And I think that it's, um, that's not normal for a mix engine, for that um, perspective, mm. um, for the mix engineer Maybe, maybe I'm wrong because you're telling me that that's what you're feeling. But, um, what I'm thinking of is the mix engineer and I will cite a very specific project that I was thinking that I was thinking about as we were talking about this guy came in, recorded, I think it was eight tunes, a good friend of Michael's and mine, mm -hmm. um, came in, recorded at coast, um, mix engineer, took it home, mixed it and said, looked at the budget and said, uh, you don't have enough money for mastering. Why don't you just let me do it? And the guy said, oh, well, okay, um, you know, fine. And then he got the bill back. It was $600 for mastering the stuff that this guy had mixed. And they also charged him several thousand dollars to make the project. Essentially bogged down the pro I'm just frustrated because it sort of bogged down the project and then charged $600 for mastering eight tunes, which is the same or or more than what Michael and I would have charged to master it, which is very frustrating because, you know, it didn't sound that good. And I, and, and I know that Michael was actually looking forward to mastering that project and it didn't, it did not turn out as good as it could have and ended up being more expensive for hmm. the client in the long run. Well, that's too bad. So that, I mean, things like that are what I think about when I go, you know, well, how about, in, you know, if you have three songs to master, what does that actually take? So for, for us, um, our rates right at this moment are $80 per track. Oh. Um, 
which they're going, you know, now for all that's for sort of legacy business for all new business. Now that we're here, it's 90 a track. That's all inclusive. That includes references, revisions, delivery to manufacturing. If we're in a attended situation, we're up to an hourly rate. It all ends up working out to be about the same. We want to work on projects. We don't want to gouge people. And there's no reason to be nickel and diming on a per minute basis unless it's like a classical project or something like that, where it's a very, a very ambiguous track length and you have really have no idea how long it's going to take. So you just say, okay, for a program minute, it's going to be three times, whatever the, whatever the program minute is. That's how we'll, we'll just, you know, do it that way. Um, but I think our rates are very reasonable. And for someone to have, uh, you know, say two tracks that they've spent, I'm going to just guess, you know, anywhere between five and $800 to record and mix two tracks properly, mm-hmm. 80 bucks a track isn't that much. And this is just about valuing yourself and, right. and, and coming at the project from a business perspective and a reputation perspective and a being proud of your project perspective. Right. Dude, don't go out to lunch for a week. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, <laughs> that's all it takes. So let's put it all together, though. You know? I mean, if you get a 10-song record at 90 bucks a track, there's 900 bucks. So how does, how does a mix engineer who doesn't have any experience with you or Michael... Test the waters because... Yeah, that's a great question. Let's face it. I mean, there's a different aesthetic. It's not like all mastering engineers are created. No. I mean, they may all have the same love and passion that you have for quality, but what that means at the end of the day for the tone and and overall aesthetic of the record is a very different thing. And I've experienced that in across... Like, there's a vast difference between mastering engineers. I'll just say that. Yeah. And... Some mastering engineers' aesthetic um, works for some things and doesn't work for other things. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, first of all, I mean, I'm not, you know, not necessarily trying to sell our mastering business, but no, I, no, but, but I'm but not I mean, not I mean, because because one... I think people need to understand that it's not that it's not that hard to budget in master, proper mastering. Uh-huh. I like to I like I like to say proper mastering, okay? Because there's mastering where you just like where you kind of finalize the record and make sure it doesn't like totally suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and sequence it because maybe the artist has done the entire thing themselves and then the mixer just sort of like gives it a one once over and makes sure that it's sort of, you know, it has some PQ codes and they're all kind of correct and it sends off to manufacturing. That's fine. You know, at least someone has put another set of eyes on it. The, the thing about mastering that people really forget is that it's not supposed to be about a sound. It's not supposed to be, um, you know, the loudest, how, how loud it is. And it's not necessarily supposed to be about how impressive it is. It's supposed to be about how correct it is. And that goes from the second I see a mix and go, Hey, this is like totally clipping in a bad way. Um, to this is so quiet. If I boost it at all, our noise floor is going to be kind of screwed. Um, to, you know, did you mean to say that the title is this and I know that it's spelled incorrectly and the artist goes oh my god I'm so glad you caught that because anyone else would have just sent it along to you know there's a there's a dropout in the recording and it's my job to tell the artist that that's a problem in the mix down mm-hmm. uh, that's what mastering is about and it, it's, it's it's quality and it's, control. it's quality control and it's format it's knowing your formats yeah that's something that you don't get from I'm sorry the the regular mix engineer. I know that when I make a, when I make a master that is, that should sound great on everything, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily meant to sound great on a laptop speaker. It's not necessarily meant to sound great on the radio. It's just meant to sound correct on everything. 
um, and not be missing all of these big important things. Because remember that mix engineer I told you about a minute ago who mm. did the project for an extra 600 bucks? Right. That project had clipping on it. It's a folk album. It shouldn't have digital clipping. Somebody should have caught that. Yeah. What someone pays for when they come here and work with you or Michael is you have an infrastructure and you've got extra people putting their ears on things. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to build a house, you're not going to ask the plumber to do the electrician's work necessarily or the HVAC guy or mm -hmm. uh, whatever. So uh, that's I a think, great analogy. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, there's ideal circumstances to make records and then, which is great, but those circumstances aren't always available. So that's when the compromises come into play. And I, and I understand that. And I know you do as well, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It is. It's hard. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, you do, you do get the projects where you go, well, why are they paying me for this? The mixer should have just mastered this or, uh, you know, it's it, that, that thought goes through your head for a second and then you go, oh, well, let me dig in. It's going to be fine. Um, but sometimes there are the projects that are just so far gone and so not you just wish that the artist did not do it <laughs> or call you <laughs> or I mean, and it's not, you know, it's like, you know, you have to, like I said, you have to make a living, you have to have a business and you try and make sure that every recording that leaves here is always going to be improved further than just being literally being correct. But no, there are some projects where you go, oh man, the auto tune is so apparent and it's, or that drum recording is so out of phase and so bad that you just go, why are they, you know, why, why didn't they just start again? You know, they're not on a, they're not on a huge budget. They're not on a huge time crunch, um, at this, you know, but they should be able to look at this again and, and, and hopefully imp improve the recording. I question the situations where people like spend nothing on the recordings, but then they'll spend an enormous <laughs> amount on the mastering to be honest That with happens you. a lot. I, yeah, that happens. Thinking that Oh, it's all going to get solved in mastering. In fact, I've had people in bands say, oh, I have this one issue, but I bet that'll get solved in mastering. And I always stop them and go, no, it won't. Thank you for saying that. We got to solve it now. Yeah, because I have, you know, I have a left and a right. And a mid and, and a sometimes side. a mid and a side if it helps. And that's it, man. I don't, I, you know, and I don't really like mastering stems. I do it um, when I think it can improve can improve the project, but for the most part, like I want to hear what you did in the mix. Like I want to hear your mix. I want to hear the decisions you made and why you made. Like I want to hear the magic of the mix when it left your studio. I don't want to hear your stems. <laughs> like I don't want to finish the mix for you. I right. want you to own it and and stand up and go. This is my mix, and I love it. And don't. Fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 hate, I hate that concept of stems. To me, it's like sometimes it helps. It, sometimes it, it totally helps with like some dance mixes and stuff. And sometimes I get um, things that are that need to be mixed down for movie temp uh -huh. stuff. And and stems totally helps. I mean, um, in my opinion, like for the average rock record or Americana record or whatever, it's to me it's like, well, here's all the clothes I picked out. Can you dress me? It's like, <laughs> no, get dressed and let's see how you look and I'll that's touch up so your hair right. and tighten your tie. Oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> that's a fantastic analogy for that. <laughs> oh, I'm full of them. That's great. But, so with AES coming up, yeah, I'm glad you're here because we have, we do have a couple panels. Michael's on one about mastering and I'm on one with, um, Darcy Proper and Leslie Ann Jones and Erica Schwartz about the X factor in audio. And that is, you know, presenting yourself in such a way that 
you're an undeniable engineer and and no matter what background you have or what gender um or is you're it just the xy the, factor sorry <laughs> you're just the uh the best engineer you can be um and and you know it's a little bit about talking about what we how how we all came up and um and the mentors that we've had and what our backgrounds have been but it should be a really cool panel very cool it should be pretty so fun. so uh, once so tell me again so michael's going to be on a panel called his previous panels I, and this that's why i don't actually know the name of it off the top of my head uh, his previous panels have been called Master Mission with okay. um, uh, Joe Palmacio and Andrew Mendelson and Gavin Larson and Michael and usually moderated by someone entertaining like Tom Kenny. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think they have a little bit of a different panel this year, so I'm not sure exactly, but it should be really entertaining. Point is, is there's two panels that you each, you each are on a panel at AES. I, I'm on, I'm on two panels. What, but What's the date of your panel? Mine's on Friday. Okay. It's called The X Factor in Audio. Okay. And uh, so if people are at AES, they can look for you there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, then also another one called uh, Brand Yourself. And that's on Friday as well. It's, oh. about, it's about branding yourself as an engineer um, and and making sure that you stay true to that. That's it's pretty cool. That's, and what, it, what, what does that mean to you, staying true to that? You know, what you, what you opened our, our little talk with here today was like what, I'm, what I stand for is quality in audio and upholding that as much as you possibly can. Um, and then also valuing yourself. Um, so those are, those are my, you know, two things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also mentorship and all that. But I know that a couple of the other engineers that are on that, on that are, are interested in community and things like that too. So. Hey Piper, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thanks Matt. And, uh, you're at AES. Look for Piper, look for Michael, Mm -hmm. go say hello. All right. Thanks very much. Have a nice day. Have a nice day. Have a nice day. All right, Piper Payne on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Some good information there. Good conversation. Always good to see Piper. She's she's such a a good egg, as I like to say. Hardworking person at that. So uh, that's it. We're out of time today. But as usual, I want to make sure you do know our music is provided by Cliff Truesdale. Our voiceover intro, that's Chuck Smith. And of course, Cole Williams is on it with social media and additional audio support. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. And thanks to you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.